You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you are listening to the And Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me. And the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What's going on, Pastor Butler? Oh, everything, man. It's, uh, Everything's good? It's been a great week. We spent most of it below the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, Below, so you've been below. You've been in my my territory. Yes, indeed. Down okay, Atlanta okay. Orlando. Good stuff. Now, y'all may notice he's a little a little uh, fuzzier than normal. He doesn't have his microphone. He's still traveling, as he said. He's in uh, the South, traveling around. So uh, you can hear him, but it'll be a little fuzzier today. But you'll still get something out of it. Now, I just want to start off with this, and we've been talking about this probably for the last three weeks. The Olympics have ended, and the victor has been named okay the united states won the most medals i think in every uh uh, category of medals uh we dominated as expected uh as i believe that we would and it's just good to say let let me actually go to the actual medal count and read off this medal count so the the united states had 39 gold medals the closest to us was china with uh 38 medals we had 41 silver medals 33 bronze medals. That's 113 medals. The next closest to us was China at 88 medals. Now, I don't know about you, Chris, but that's the type of domination I want to see. Winning by what, 25, almost 30 medals. Uh, I think it's very clear when you look at the the rank uh, of uh, in the Olympics in that medal count that the United States dominated as we should. Uh, and that's just the way it should go. Now, Now, before I go any further, I want to acknowledge I know that some of the people that listen to this show are, are just too woke to cheer for the United States uh, when it comes to the Olympics. And I hate to say it, but I, I can't go with you there. Uh, me and my sons, me and my family loved watching the Olympics, love watching the United States dominate. Uh, it, it was great stuff. It's everything I could ask for. I'll be honest. I watched it so much that I got behind on my reading, dog. For the last two weeks, two or three weeks, I probably read, I probably read one book. Uh, and so I'm a little behind, but really enjoyed it. Chris, how, how did you enjoy the Olympics, man? Hey, we were just talking about this, this morning because I said uh, to my kids this morning, like the United States, you know, we won the Olympics. And, you know, there were questions like, can you actually win like the Olympics? I'm like, hey, look at the medal count. We got the we got the highest medal count. We got more of each, you know, medal category. We got the most silver medals, most gold, most bronze. And, you know, we won. So uh, that's pretty exciting to me and uh, to the Butler House. I don't know. If you don't cheer for the uh, for the U.S. in the Olympics, that's cool. But you didn't win because the United States did. Right. You get to cheer for who you want to cheer for. But if you didn't cheer for the United States, the fact of the matter is you lost. The United States absolutely won the Olympics. Now, I'm going to ask you this quickly, and we're going to get to to what folks want to hear. What's your favorite sport to watch? Mine 
has to be track and field, especially the women's sprints are my favorite part of uh, the Olympics. I enjoy basketball and all that, but track and field, especially the sprints, is, is what I'm really looking for. What about you? Yeah, I mean, as I, I should, you know, because it's a podcast, say something different, but it is track and field for me, probably just because I don't really watch that sport when it's not the Olympics. Uh, so it, it's sort of exciting and I can get into it. I'm with you on that, man. I am with you on that. Well, we know you didn't exactly come to hear us talk about the Olympics. We hope that you uh, uh, joined us in our celebration of the dominance of the United States in in those Olympics. But we're going to get to what you came for. So as usual, uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican and not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. This first (laughs) this first uh, subject is 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 fairly interesting. But I think it has some some really significant um, impacts. Language always has been important, has been an important part of identity. Uh, And what I mean is the language you speak, the lexicon or vocabulary you use often tells others something about your nationality. Your region of origin, your personality, your beliefs, all these things that come together to create our identities. Right. And if you look at critical studies and there's been a lot said about critical studies, but one thing out of some of the things I think it gets wrong, one thing I gets right, I think it gets right is critical studies would tell us that those in power often use language as a weapon of control, as a means of gauging or ascribing status and as a way of determining whether or not certain people belong. And I think it's pretty hard to deny that language has been used in that way for those purposes historically in this country. I think coming into this conversation, that's something that we can all agree on. Now, certain people have also kind of always been demeaned based on their things like their diction, right, or or their accent. So, for instance, if Comedians are trying to portray a person who lacks intelligence or who lacks culture. They'll use a certain diction and they'll use a certain accent. They'll pronounce words in a certain way because we relate some accents to specific social classes and levels of sophistication. Like, you know, people who are really verbose, meaning they use a lot of big words in many cases, are trying to demonstrate that they're they're trying to demonstrate their intelligence because they know they'll be categorized on that basis. Okay, now we know that people even imitate uh, certain certain language or certain ways of speaking and accent and accents in order to fit into a particular class or in group. And I'll be honest, I myself am not innocent of that. Some of this is innocent. You know, some of this is benign. Sometimes people do it for well-meaning reasons. Sometimes it's ambitious. And in other instances, as has been the case uh, for black people throughout the years, those in power create language and labels for us to control our identity, to control our self-esteem, to control our beliefs and our outlook on life. If I can control your language and your labels, I can have a major impact on your identity and on your beliefs. 
Now, because of all the things above that we that I just mentioned, the Ann campaign is very deliberate about language. We know that we know the language we use will shape how we're identified and that it'll have a significant impact on our audience. So we always challenge Christians not to uncritically parrot or imitate the language that comes out of the ideological left and the ideological right. We're always challenging Christians, and we do this in our book, Compassion and Conviction. We're always challenging Christians to think about what's being said and to think about its implications. To think about why something is being said and to think about if it reflects on if it reflects how people want to be addressed. This is something Christians should be thoughtful about. And here's the tension. Let's face it. Labels labels are also kind of unavoidable. Not all of the labels that people get are going to be flattering. And sometimes the labels people don't like can be an accurate description. But you should be careful about how you use language and labels, especially when addressing groups who've historically been mistreated and marginalized. And so as we get into this next subject, I'm, in fact, actually going to use some labels and even some pejoratives right now, but with a purpose. So listen up. Because something very significant is happening in our culture right now, and it ties into things we've been talking about for quite a while. One of the things that is happening is that elite secular progressives, yes, that's a label, elite secular progressives, the arbiters of all that is good, just, equitable, anti-racist, and compassionate, have sent a message to our Hispanic brothers and sisters. And the message that they've sent, in my understanding, goes something like this. We love that your people are so ethnic, spirited, and spicy. But your language, the identifiers that you and your people have been using for centuries, are too gendered. Yeah, some of those identifiers, some of that language is just too gendered. It doesn't fit our new social construction for how gender and identity work. It's archaic. And it's obsolete. Therefore, you must no longer call yourselves Latino. You must call yourselves, if you yearn for our validation, And if you yearn for the sophistication and status that only we can bestow, you must call yourselves Latinx, L-A-T-I-N-X. Anything else lacks intelligence and the required signs of an evolved mind. Now, the folks who issue these type of edicts, they issue this edict from on high. From places of perceived power and authority, from the ivory ivory towers of academia, and they enforce it through pop culture and, and, and through the armies of secular activism. And one thing that you should know, this is urgent. One thing that you should know is that when they when they when they issue these edicts, they're effective immediately. 
So you'll notice if you're on Twitter and you're on other places, all the cool kids have already been using this terminology for a while, Chris. And if you want to fit in, you better catch up. When commands like this come down from secular Mount Sinai, some Christians, usually those in professional and academic circles and those that wish to be in those circles, these Christians immediately repeat the language and the lexicon that has just been put down there, that's just been given to them. It's done for different reasons. Some of it is well-meaning. It's a well-meaning attempt to be considerate. Somebody told you that this is what you say if you're going to be considerate, and so you say it. For others, it's a way to stay on the cutting edge and to keep up with the cool artists and and activists and academics that you look up to. And sadly for some, and hopefully, hopefully this is the minority, it's a way to look down on those who have no idea what you're talking about. It gives us a feeling of intellectual superiority that we can parade around like a crown jewel. And sometimes language does that. It allows us to identify out groups and disassociate from our lessers. I'm educated. I'm sophisticated. I belong. And you don't because I got the memo to say Latinx and you, you fool. Did not. You still say Hispanic or Latino. Well, my friends, if you're using the term Latinx uh, because you think it's a the considerate thing to do, um, you might want to reconsider using that term. And hey, it's up to you. But you might want to reconsider it based on a Gallup poll that came that uh, was was commissioned in July. And it just came out, I think, a couple of days ago. The polls show that very few Hispanic people want to be called Latinx. Um, almost 95 percent of them prefer Hispanic or Latino. That leaves about five percent that want to be called Latinx. Uh, the polls show that they are younger, that this group is younger. And my guess, this isn't part of the poll. The poll does say that they're younger. But my guess is that they're more enmeshed in pop culture and academia. Uh, they have now, whatever you want to be called, whatever folks want to be called, they, they have the right to prefer that. But that's the thing about language and power that I think we, we have to notice too, Chris. The people who have the power to control language will always have a small group within their circle that they can point to as representatives of the group that they're labeling. And that small group who's subscribed to their worldview gives them cover. Right. So, for instance, they can say, hey, there are blacks and there are Hispanics who agree with us. Therefore, this isn't racist. It might even be a black or Hispanic person who came up with the term. But they're usually deeply embedded in the Western European secular progressive worldview. Now, of course, when this. When this poll came out, a lot of progressives were mad at this scientific study. They were mad at the facts because the facts didn't support their narrative and what they want to turn society into. But I hope after everyone kind of gets out of their feelings, 
after everyone pushes aside what they wanted the conclusion to be or how they wanted this group to feel about the labels that they put on them, that it will actually take a moment to see that it's insulting, that it's disrespectful to label minorities by names they haven't put on themselves. Even if you can find a black person or a Latino person who uses the term, it's wrong. It comes from an imperialistic and colonizing impulse or instinct. It's part of what Pope Francis called ideological colonization. And secular progressives need to check themselves because they're often guilty of it. Chris, what is your perspective on this whole Latinx conversation? Well, you know, I think for, for the first thing, it's important to uh, acknowledge, I think most of the people who listen to this show know this, but I am not Latino. Um, but I, I do remember when I first started hearing the word, uh, and, I, and I, was, I was perplexed by it because I was like, was that a, a mistake? Uh, so I looked it up and, and found that it was this sort of thing that was just kind of handed down. Uh, and certainly uh, in the places where I live and work, it was just not the kind of thing that was coming up uh, from the ground. And so it, it certainly seems to me a bit, uh, I don't know, inappropriate uh, to hand down this type of label based on really as somebody who did, you know, uh, you know, I, I studied a lot of Spanish language, you know, in high school and in college. And it also ignores some some of the realities about the language itself. I mean, just coming in and saying that the, the language is too gender and that type of thing, like you have to, you have to fundamentally change the Spanish language, right? In order to, to really make this thinking uh, permeate throughout the use of words generally. So this, the idea that you would uh, send down this sort of label on a group of people who did not do this, uh, you know, didn't come up with that label on their own, uh, seems to me to be inappropriate. As somebody who I do think, um, you know, has some, I don't know, uh, 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 connection, some, some kindred with, uh, you know, sort of progressive thought. It, it would seem to me that if, if your thinking is really uh, progressive and pro marginalized people, that you that you would actually uh, be against taking a label and slapping it on a group of folks who have not uh, put that label on themselves. Um, and and it, it really brings uh, into my mind, Justin, this question, uh, which is sort of an ongoing question for me, which is how do those of us who are in uh, sort of uh, cultural spaces and, and ethnic spaces and communities uh, that that need progress, right? Like that, that need to be pushing, you know, or in, in various places of, of government and society for progress and, and change and forward movement. How do we participate in that without uh, surrendering to other folks who I suppose have some space in, in this movement, but without surrendering some of these cultural values that, that really turn out to be very important to us. Because, you know, we're, we're talking about this Latinx uh, thing, which, which the poll clearly showed, certainly that there's no preference um, among, uh, you know, Latino people to 
uh, to adopt that word. Uh, but even even beyond that, there, there are things in, in our culture, just like you know, uh, that are really important to us. And it it, it worries my mind. I don't want to say worry because worry is not great, but it, it concerns me quite a bit when I think about how we move forward uh, on some things that we really need to move forward on uh, without being forced to surrender areas of our culture that are really important to us. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me because forcing this label on people, even if there's somebody who's in secular progressive spaces, who's Latino that actually came up with it, or, you know, who, you know, endorses it or whatever. I've already talked about that. But it's so interesting because putting those labels on people to me is everything that progressives say they're not. Right. It's paternalistic. I mean, you could go down the list of things. This is just not what you do to people if you respect their culture. You don't tell them what to call themselves. You don't come up with this name, put it all. And I mean, President Biden used it. I think that was a huge mistake. And it comes from having these folks around him that come out of these academic and professional circles that think that's the label that you need to use when most of the people don't even identify with that. And it's it's, it's insulting. And it's just, you know, and, and I've even joked around with, with friends who have, who have used the term and said, dude, like most people don't even call themselves that. Why are you using this term? Uh, is it because it just came out and it makes us, you know, kind of sound uh, uh, smarter or something like that? And, and we just need, really need to pay attention. I mean, you know, one of our founders, co-founders, Angel, Angel Maldonado uh, his, is Hispanic. Uh, if you call him Latinx, he's going to look at you crazy. That's just not what he refers to himself as. And I don't think any culture needs you to tell them exactly you know, what to call themselves. I remember the first time that somebody on my uh, on the Internet called my wife BIPOC. Um, we had no idea what they were talking about. I mean, I didn't know. I thought they said Tupac. Or I didn't know they were talking <laughs> about Tupac. Or I didn't know if this was some iteration, some different iteration of the N-word. I didn't know what they were talking about. I had to Google it. And it, let me tell you, so it wasn't a black person. It wasn't an indigenous person that said this. Right. But this person and I don't think they meant anything by it. But this person felt like the best way to address it would be to call somebody something they don't even know what you're talking about. Now, I don't know if she expected us to know or not, but that word couldn't have been like as far as in pop culture, it couldn't have been more than, you know, six months old before it was used. We had no idea what she was talking about, because I don't know. If you go in my neighborhood and you go probably in your neighborhood and you find see a black person and, and call them BIPOC, you might get beat up. dog. <laughs> nobody know. Nobody knows what you're talking about. But in these circles, I just signed a contract that had BIPOC in it. I'm like, what, what is it? What's going on here in these circles where they can issue these ed- edicts and these commands on what people need to be called? And really just the only reason that that needs to be changed is to go along with how they're trying to reconstruct society to go along with an ideology that again never never went through a true discourse with everyday people and common people in society and this is one of my biggest problems when it comes to a lot of stuff that progressives are pushing it's very elitist in that they don't think they have to have a conversation about it They just say, hey, this is what people should be called because it fits our purposes and it fits our narratives. And y'all got to find a way to make it work for you. 
We're going to give you six months. We're going to give you a year. Then you need to abide by this because they don't trust the people within their own cultures, within our society to have a real conversation and let the people decide. This is why you hear some people refer to progressives in academia and in other places as as oligarchs because they're not running things. It's not a democratic process. Right. When it comes to culture, they're not running things past people. They're doing what they want to do. And then asking you to go along with it. And then they weaponize the representatives of your group that are close to them to make sure that they enforce what they've been saying. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with some of these labels. And, you know, this is you're not going to go to hell if you call somebody Latinx. But what we're what I think we're asking you to do and, and Chris may differ. But what I'm asking you to do is be more thoughtful about where this stuff is coming from. And where this type of language is headed and whether or not it's respectful for to the people who have been labeling themselves and living in certain ways and had their culture for centuries and centuries. Pay attention to that. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think it's certainly, you know, you want to pay attention to that. And I I don't want to be alarmist uh, here, but it it goes in the direction of really cheapening culture. Which, I mean, I think is just, it's something that is and would be horrible um, for our broader society. But when you think about communities of people who have for centuries uh, been uh, marginalized, oppressed, mistreated, you know, choose your term. uh, And then you start, you know, robbing those communities of their indigenous culture. I think that's that that's really horrible, and it's something for us to pay very close attention to. Because a lot of times, uh, you know, that culture is is what we have. You know, we're not, um, you know, passing down. I mean, hopefully, in you know our generation and generations to come, uh, we are, you know, passing down. You know, a lot more, you know, financial wealth and property and that kind of thing. But those are not the things uh, that we have passed down. The most meaningful things. Uh, that we have inherited uh, is our, our cultural component. It is culture. Uh, and so if we start having to give up language, give up ceremony, give up, uh, you know, particular ways of doing things, uh, believing worldview uh, in order to, you know, continue to be a part of sort of uh, justice movement that's incredibly dangerous. You, you use the, uh, the idea of a, a sort of colonial, uh, imperialistic kind of instinct. Um, and, and I think it is of, of the, the highest, uh, importance that we think about it that way and that we pay close attention to it that way because you don't want to slowly and perhaps unintentionally while you're in pursuit of your narrative, you don't want to slowly and unintentionally rob communities of perhaps their most valuable asset, uh, which is culture. That's good. I want everybody to repeat after me. I am somebody. I am somebody. And guess what? You're that somebody, whether you use the labels and language that the folks in academia and the active folks want you to use. You don't have to use that to to feel bigger, to feel better. And if you want to, you can. If you think it's more accurate, you can. But you better think about how it 
comes off to other people. And you better keep in mind that most of these people didn't ask those folks to label them at all and could care less what they think they should be labeled. Just something to think about. This is a pretty long segment. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. So we had a pretty intense uh, first uh, topic. This one is more about policy. Uh, You may know or you may have heard that the Biden administration and Congress have been working on a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, Just so you know, we've talked about infrastructure several times on this podcast, but just for anybody who missed it, infrastructure is basically the skeleton or the bones of the country, the roads, the bridges, the pipes. And I'll even add broadband to that now that we're in, you know, the Internet age. And unfortunately, America has a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar infrastructure backlog in this country. And it's, it's a serious matter because what that means is that our roads, our bridges, our pipes and so on are falling apart. I mean, and that's not an exaggeration, literally falling apart, literally gone past how long they were even supposed to serve us. And yet they're still up and we're still using them. Now, in a, in a sort of indirect way, that has a serious impact on our economy and can have a worse impact on our economy. Wear and tear on our cars, slowing down, you know, uh, imports and all that other stuff. That's something that we have to deal with. But most importantly, it's dangerous on a very basic level. We've seen how dangerous old water pipes can be. It should be obvious how dangerous old bridges can be. And so this bill that um, is, is all about infrastructure that the Biden administration made one of their priorities is long overdue. Now, according to the Associated Press, the United States Senate is on track to give final approval to a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan this week. In fact, the bill might have already passed by the time that you guys are listening, or at least passed the Senate. Let me be clear. Their bill might have already passed the Senate by the time many of you hear this. It won't. It, I doubt it would have already passed uh, the House. Now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says said that this is the first time the Senate has come together around such a package in decades. You guys know just as well as I do that it's not very often that our Congress uh, can come together and the Senate can come together and actually pass something that's major and bipartisan, right? So it's been decades, according to the Senate Majority Leader, that something like this has happened. That said, and it's something I support, that said, the bill does have its detractors outside of the Senate. One of those critics is President Trump. President Trump has not been quiet. He has been saying that Republicans should not support this bill, that it's not a good bill, that all it's going to do is help Democrats in the midterms and that uh, that Republicans should push back. He's also had some very choice labels. We were just talking about labels and some very choice insults for Senator McConnell, who is the leader in the Senate for uh, the, the Republicans. 
Uh, he's basically said that he's a fool for supporting uh, this measure. Well, so far, Chris, Trump's comments have mostly been ignored by Republican senators. Uh, most of the folks in the Senate, you may not believe it or not, because of how they talk about Trump and how they acted when he was in office. Most of them do not want to listen to him at all and, and would rather not have him uh, kind of uh, sticking his nose into what's going on now. Um, but I think, Chris, and you, you know, if you think I'm wrong, you can you can let me know. I think he will have a more receptive audience in the House of Representatives. Um, I don't know that it'll be enough to stop the bill, but I think you'll have more House Republicans listening to what Trump's saying. Uh, that's just uh, many times how it works out. But it's not just the Republicans. It's not just Trump who is against this bill um, or has a, issues with with the whole package. Some progressives are also skeptical, uh, led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, the left is saying that they may hold the bill up in the House. They're saying we may hold this bill up in the House until they get assurance that a second infrastructure package will be passed through the reconciliation process. Um, so basically what they're saying is we want this bill, this infrastructure bill isn't enough. It doesn't address some of the things we wanted to address. And the only way we're going to allow this to pass is if we know that the re- that there's going to be a second bill after this, that's a, a second reconciliation package, infrastructure package, that's going to come after this, that Democrats will just pass themselves. So we've talked about reconciliation on the show before, but basically if you pass it through reconciliation, which is the budget process, you don't need to get the same. You just need to get a, a, a majority. So they wouldn't need any Republican votes, but they want to make sure the progressives, the, the left in the House, they want to make sure that this second package is going to go through as well, because the second package has things like uh, stuff for climate change. It has free community college. It has stuff like pre uh, universal pre-K, all that stuff. They want more of that in this second package. And they know the they know the Republicans wouldn't vote for it, but they also know that they wouldn't have to because they'll get it through. Now, the question is, would they really try to stop this? Well, the first question is, Chris, maybe I should back up a little bit. The first question is, can they stop it? Can they hold it up? And they can only hold it up if there aren't enough Republicans to replace them. So right now, uh, AOC is saying that she has double digit progressive House Democrats that are ready to hold this up if they don't get assurance that this reconciliation package is coming. Some would say that there are more Republicans. So more than just her double, you know, double digits, if it's 10 or whatever, there are more Republicans to replace them so that they could still get it passed without this reconciliation bill. My thought here is, Chris, and I could be wrong. I think the progressives are bluffing. I do think that they want this second package. But I don't believe that right before that before midterms, not right before, but before midterms, that they would not pass something this significant going into the midterms. Uh, I see this as somewhat of a bluff. You can decide whether or not they should be doing it or not. And maybe I'll be proven wrong. It's hard to tell. What do you think, Chris? What's your whole thought on just this this infrastructure package that Biden is pushing and has been a priority uh, pretty much since day one? Yeah, I mean, so I I would say, I don't know, a few things. One, I said on this show many months ago when they first started talking about this two-track infrastructure that I thought that the language 
would become problematic when you think about uh, certain things that I certainly am a fan of, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Universal Community College and uh, a lot of things that will be in that second package. Um, you know, the idea of calling that stuff infrastructure, I thought was a little confusing. And they're still today trying to call it human infrastructure and uh, pair these things in a way that I think might be slightly uh, unnatural and difficult to communicate. Um, you know, but this, the infrastructure plan uh, that, you know, cleared all those hurdles this weekend in the Senate, the trillion dollar packet uh, that'll probably pass soon, it'll go over to the House. And like you said, there are two things that are going to be fighting in the House because you're going to have Trump putting pressure on House Republicans. Uh, and you're going to have uh, progressives, you know, that I would kind of hope wouldn't necessarily be only identified with like the most, uh, you know, sort of extreme left uh, wing of the party when it comes to really thinking hard about the idea that this first half of Biden's first term is probably the very best opportunity uh, that we have to do some very major things. I think that folks throughout the party should be looking at that. Um, and so when it comes to the question of are they bluffing about holding up the trillion dollar package, it, I, I would say historically, I would agree that they would be bluffing, that they would not uh, hold up the package. Uh, I think that there probably will be enough votes to at least try. Um, and maybe they will this time. I mean, these, these folks, you know, I think who came to Congress to push on some of these uh, sort of populist uh, economic policies have talked about these things, usually um, have not really uh, used all the power that they have. Uh, to actually affect change. Um, I, I do think that they have received a lot of criticism for that from their own sort of uh, base of folks, whether it be in their districts or even kind of like the, the talking heads that I think people in Washington, D.C. listen to a lot. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism. And I think we have to look at the fact that Cory Bush just had um, what I would think is a, a, a victory on the uh, the the rent moratorium or the housing uh, eviction moratorium, and you know she did the the protest stuff on the steps. That wasn't necessarily legislative procedure, but she did get a victory. She moved um, you know uh, the White House to extend the moratorium and was you know very well celebrated after that by congressional colleagues. So this might be an opportunity or moment for this group to change their sort of approach to this and maybe do try uh, holding up the package, which I, I think I would suggest is um, fair game uh, in the legislature. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's necessarily trying to sink the government or, or anything like that. Uh, but when you look at this moment, and if you look at this moment and you see uh, a very critical opportunity to do some things that are very important for people uh, all over the country, things that you believe in a lot. Uh, and, and you see if you let this opportunity go past, that you may not get it back. 
uh, it might be an important moment uh, uh, to do that. And if if Donald Trump is on the other side, putting pressure on Republicans, and they are not enough Republicans, you know, to pass the thing out of the House, then that does put some pressure on Democrats in the Senate, maybe even Republicans in the Senate, uh, to do some version of of another package. And hopefully those Democrats and Republicans, House and Senate, can come together to do some of these things. Uh, maybe not all of the things, uh, but, it, but to do a lot of these things that are uh, generationally important for people. Yeah, I mean, you're, I'm with you. It, it's certainly important. What we saw Corey Bush do uh, showed that there is some leverage there. I, w- I would mention, obviously, what she wasn't doing was stopping a trillion dollar, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like trillion dollar uh, uh, bill from going through. So it's a little different. But all of this is somewhat of a gamble. And, and in politics, you have to be ready to kind of use your leverage when necessary. And when you lose your lever- use your leverage, there's always usually there's a risk involved, right? That somebody might call your bluff or somebody might, you know, or that you miss the opportunity and some that could have passed. And then you lose the house. And now you don't, you know, you don't have anything. So look, progressives are going to do what they think is best uh, for them. It's hard for me to see them holding this up to the point where it may not really may not pass. We'll see if the administration or really it's not even really the administration. It's it's some of these um, more moderate senators. Right. We'll see if they go for it, if they even care, you know, that they're trying to prove a point. They say, look, this is where it is, because the problem even with the, the other package is that when you put all this, you know, environmental stuff in there and all that, these are things that Manchin's going to have, you know, Senator Manchin's going to have a problem with some of that stuff. So even if they do get that other package, how much of the stuff they want is actually going to be in there is is a question. I don't fault anybody for taking, so don't get me wrong, I don't fault anybody for taking these positions, staking out that, you know, staking out their position and saying, hey, this is what I think we need to do for our people, because you're right, this chance does not come up too often but you better play your cards right. Um, and, and we'll see because you got a lot of folks that have been playing this game for a long time. Uh, if Pelosi chooses not to go along with AOC in that game, they're going to have a hard time. I mean, she knows what she's doing a lot more than they do. And th- unless they get some, you know, uh, so, some some better strategy under their belts than they've had before, they might run into trouble there. And then you got Manchin, who really just may not care, you know, what their perspective is on it. We'll see. Um I would like to think that this is going to pass. Not sure what's going to happen with the second package. We may get something that may be significantly smaller, but only time will tell. Um, so we will be uh, checking in and 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 letting y'all know what's going on, updating you on what's going on with this. And we'll be back uh, for our final segment. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the AND campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter. 
that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and Pastor, Pastor Christopher Butler. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10 says, Brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Now, when you hear that scripture, you do see the word election. And a good Bible reader, a someone who understands the Bible, would know that election probably could mean different things than or it could be used differently than how it might be used in the public square. Well, unfortunately, I think there was a uh, a lady in who's a Texas legislator. I believe she was from Texas. That actually used this scripture to say to defend election reform legislation. She took first, she took Second Peter chapter one, verse 10 to mean this is why we should secure our elections. This is why election reform is good, because the Bible tells us that our elections need to be secure. And if we secure our elections, as in political elections, we will never fall. Whew, Chris, I could be wrong. Um, I have not finished seminary yet. I do read the Bible a lot. I do read a lot of theology. I don't think Peter's talking about political elections here. <laughs> I think he's talking about the elect of God. I think he's talking about salvation, but you're the pastor. I'm going to defer to you. Let me know what's going on here, brother. So I asked you, Justin, before we came on, if that was serious and real. Um, And apparently it is. And I don't know what to say. This is a podcast. You're supposed to say something. I literally do not know what to say. not only would a good Bible reader, which you would think if you are an elected official and an adult and you're going to quote the Bible like in public, you would at least look into it a little bit to try to discern what it means. Um, I don't even see how you can really come to that uh, at all. But it is for sure, just so that there is no question to church politics listeners, it is for sure not talking about political elections uh, being uh, made sure so that we never fall. It is talking about making sure that our calling and election uh, in the eyes of God to salvation, that those things are made sure in our hearts. So we're looking diligently after those things and we will never fall. I couldn't believe it. That was incredible to me, man. In our eagerness to have God behind what we want to do, to have God behind the policies that we like, to have God behind the legislation that we're pushing, 
I don't I don't often see this as egregiously, but you still do see it sometimes where people are taking scripture and saying it says exactly this. And it just happens to support all my positions on capitalism or socialism and all this other stuff. And it's like, well, this is a different context. We need to look at what these words actually mean, what the you know, what the original word, the original Greek or whatever was. Uh, Please don't do this, guys. Please don't take. One word, because this isn't even, I mean, the whole scripture doesn't even really necessarily fit. But that one word, that election connected with something else was taken out of context. And somebody used this at at an actual legislative hearing to back their position. Now, I'm not going to get into any names. I'm not trying to pile on. I do want to use this to say we have to be better Bible readers. You never isolate a scripture not look up what the word actually actually means and then use it to defend your political position. And it happened, not this egregiously, but it happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, we've both, I've been in, I've listened to sermons where, you know, the pastor quotes scripture from first something in first Kings and then just goes in on how he hates Trump. Yeah. And none of the stuff that was actually in the scripture had anything to do with what he's talking about, but he took that scripture and used it to talk about what he wanted to talk about. Right. Um, And so we've all probably been around this before. This is pretty bad because this is just, you know, pretty obvious. It should seem pretty obvious to a mature Christian. This is not what the Bible's talking about here. How do we, Chris, how do we just watch out for taking the taking the Bible to mean what we want it to mean on political issues or cultural issues? How do we avoid that and why should we avoid that? Yeah, I think one way. Justin, is to just watch that clip uh, and remind ourselves upon watching it that when we do it, while it may not be quite so egregious, it really is no different. Um, it's no different in terms of, you know, the the impact uh, and the import and the the low esteem for the scripture itself, right? So e- even if your thing is not so obvious and egregious, uh, it is very much the same. Uh, and so we have to remember that the Bible is a book about Jesus, right? Like the, from, from cover to cover, the narrative of the scripture is about Jesus. It's not about American politics. It, it is not a commentary on your or, or my political issue du jour. Uh, it is a book about Jesus. We primarily go to that text. Uh, to understand uh, about Jesus. Now, it is going to inform us because of uh, its robust uh, and and sufficient nature. Uh, It's going to inform us about a lot of things that we uh, do in life, uh, but all of those things are going to be in view of Jesus, not so that we can pull God into one political camp or another, uh, because as, as the scriptures do tell us, his ways are always going to be higher than our ways. His thoughts are always uh, going to be higher than our thoughts. So rarely, if ever, is the Bible actually making comment on our particular uh, political situation. The Bible uh, is, is a text about Jesus. It is uh, uh, divine revelation. And even when what it says has impact, uh, on how we behave uh, in the political sphere, 
they're not making comment. It's not commentary on our politics. It's so much higher than that. Uh, and so I think if we keep it in that frame, we'll kind of be all right. Thank you, Chris. Uh, guys, just be slow to just take the scripture and use it for your own purposes. I think I think that's that's the general rule. And you, you heard Chris kind of flesh that out. Well, that's it. That's it, it for this episode. And as usual, if you want to support the AND campaign, you can go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics to become someone who's actually part of this movement and not just listening to us. This does take resources to get this done and we enjoy it, but we need your help to continue it. You can also go to the AND campaign and campaign.com uh, to the AND campaign and campaign.org, excuse me, and campaign.org. Uh, to support us there because we need your help to keep this movement going. This is a grassroots effort and it's those grassroots uh, uh, that funding that, that really helps us. Uh, we get all kind from $2 to, you know, all kinds of uh, funding month- monthly. So it doesn't have to be big, but you can help as usual. And camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, man camp. Well, how last? This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.